0: Welcome to Build Big Ideas. This is Jason Toth. And this is Scott Snelling. We
1: explore infrastructure. All right, here we go. This week we have with us, Jim Goodman. Welcome today, Jim. Thank you. You have a varied career in infrastructure, mostly in renewable energy. And I was hoping today we could start with, I know you worked on some wind farms early in your career. And if you could tell us some of the stories of going around, knocking on on ranchers' doors, trying to convince to build a wind farm on their property.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll do that. Is back in 2003, you know, I just got out of my undergrad. You know, I got a mechanical engineering degree from a pretty technical institution, and and uh, my inspiration to get into renewable energy or wind energy in particular was there was a wind farm on the front cover of my thermodynamics book. That is that is how I got into wind energy. No joke. I'm always on my maybe third or probably third internship. I worked at a mine, you know, after my freshman year. And then I worked at a defense contractor called United Defense that built stuff for the, the Navy and the Army after that, and just did a, a pretty big pivot, really out of engineering and into development. That was that itself, like the concept of going around to farmers. It was, uh, I, I drove really from Minneapolis, where I lived at the time, uh, down to Northwest Illinois. That's where kind of our development assets were going on so in the in the wind farm world as a developer you just want to get a whole bunch of land a bunch of land under option and make sure it's contiguous you know so you can electrically connect the wind turbines and then hopefully get that back to uh an interconnection with with the utility right with the transmission line so oh it, it was uh, as a 22 year old man it was a little bit out of my comfort zone you know being an engineer type right and then having to really be at the kitchen table with farmers convincing them they ought to give me an option to put a big spinning monstrosity on their <laughs> on their, probably their slot of over fourth generation guys you know and, and family so what had happened I think was uh, you know we're at a, at a time and it, I think it still continues here where the family farm uh, was was a harder thing to maintain you know you needed really a lot of acreage you know to make to make ends meet right and it's kind of go bigger, or go home I think So there's a lot of acquisitions happening where I think there was still a couple of farms there that operate on 80 acres, you know, an 80 acre farm, which now, no, it's just impossible. Unless it's a a niche, maybe a full organic has a really niche product, maybe hemp, I don't know, but right now um, that wouldn't work. But so as a consequence, when I went in there, uh, it was like, I got a, I got a thousand dollars for you if you sign this thing. And then, um, if we stick a wind turbine on your property, you get, it was kind of five grand a year per wind turbine, which, you know, for these guys that had 80 acres, especially, it was a really great payday uh, to think about building those out. The guys that had a lot of property, you could, they saw it both ways. Like, oh well, I get a lot of these wind turbines on here and that's great. Or maybe yeah, I don't want a wind turbine project, you know, anywhere around me at all. So I ran into some of those guys too that were, you know, as a, as a young man, I, I, I didn't have the wherewithal to, to really know uh, you know how, to, how close to keep our development map to my chest. And I noticed I fell victim sometimes of someone saying, "Let me see that map there, youngster, You know you take a look at it and then you'd go kind of lobby the people to stop our development project. I was like, Ooh, nice, nicely played, you know so, <laughs> but in generally, in general, I just come home, I drove, drove there and back in a, a 1996 Honda Civic and I just have stacks of like options, and then eventually leases, you know, on, on my passenger seat. <laughs> and I just bring them into the into the company and repeat. So it was a great gig. Uh, yeah, it really got my legs under me for what was ended up being over a maybe ten or twelve years in renewables.
0: Say, so, hey, Jim, I'm I'm curious. So part of what uh, Scott and I have been starting to delve into a little bit renewables and just trying to ascertain what the general population's viewpoint is on some of them. So in this particular case on wind, um, what were some of the objections that the landlords, I mean, I, I can understand where you, you speak to if you're an owner of a plot of land and, and keeping that family farm within the family uh, to the next generation and so forth. So they're always potentially cautious when it comes to options or leases, but- what were some of the more specific fears or reasons why they wouldn't want to consider having a wind turbine? And just, just so I understand you for context, we're talking, we're talking utility
2: grade wind farms, or are we talking more of a distributed wind power generation? Yeah, definitely utility grade, like hundreds, hundreds of megawatts worth. So, you know, 50 to 100 to 150 of these wind turbines. Yeah, it was pretty early, you know, with respect to um, the knowledge base of the people I was interfacing with so this is really it wouldn't be the first time they've heard about the existence of a wind farm but it, it would definitely be the first time they got into some of the details so to your question some of the stuff that would come up is really just the concept of well how tall are these things you know um, so you go through kind of the physical bits you know of like these these are not small you know they're oh god that I mean the tips up there at like I don't know 500 feet you know as it's swinging through the air so it's, it's just way up there and so the, the big maybe paradigm shift is here's your property right now. There's nothing taller than like that oak tree over there. And now it's just not going to look like that. Right. So we'd have to do some visualizations and try and kind of say, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal here. Here's why we're doing it. You know, we, we sell electricity that's generated by the effectively the sun, the Coriolis back, you know, the wind. And, and so they get that, but their concerns would, would delve into some of the, the earlier negativity so this was even early days in social media right oh three where it wasn't as omnipresent where someone could get on like a hate train and like get a bunch of other people involved so it's more kind of word of mouth at the at like the coffee shop saying you know what if the sun so if one thing i come up with a like shadow flicker you know so if the sun's behind the turban you know you're gonna get a shadow and so i'd have to say well here are the specific minutes in the day that you'll have this issue so you could Without much ado, take out an eight and a half by 11 and do incident angle, you know, of the sun versus the turbine and where it would actually affect where humans are, right, at your house. But as a thing, and then they'd have a stray voltage, that, that came up a lot, you're going to kill my cows or something. There, I'm sure there have been some issues, you know, with wind farms, but these are, you know, this is 34.5 kV, you know, kV distribution grade stuff. So, I mean, it's all the code, it's just not an issue. It's just not an issue, but taking a not an issue thing and trying to put that on someone's fourth generation farm, it's just sort of an uphill battle. But those are kind of the big ones. And, and what also happened though, which was a little painful is you'd have some that signed up and then someone that didn't. So the whole goal is get this contiguous mass. So it actually caused a bit of tumult sometimes between these landowners. And that to me was, that's that a little hard, you know, you don't want to kind of disrupt the status quo so you have to get this group together. And sometimes people are like, I want nothing to do with it. And usually the haves would have more leverage, right? You know, these bigger farmers would have more leverage and say, nah, I'm out, I'm not gonna do it. And sort of the have nots, maybe this would sort of gather together. So it ended up being more of a, a financial decision for these people versus, you know, like reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I wanna give some of these guys credit that I do believe they, they thought about such things, right? Renewables are good because of ABCD but when you get to brass tax on the property it just doesn't come up that much right it's a it's not a very good selling point to put a large piece of spinning infrastructure on their property <laughs> so my,
0: my experience is that the big 3 uh, objections that are related to wind on on an individual property or farmland such as that are the view shed which you highlight a lot which in- involves that shadow flicker uh, the noise aspect of it there's an unknown there and then the potential disruption to nature and and sort of in that order of precedence. And it it sounds to me like a lot of it was education up front, so that you could help them sort through what was rumor or their first impression and on the technicals of what they would actually experience. Yeah, yep. And then they can make a sort of a business decision on, okay, this is what maybe the impacts would be to me. And this is the benefit as far as diversification of my income portfolio here at my farm here. And um, that, that is it, yep what uh for i'm curious for these leases so if you've got a uh, if you got an option you went under lease how long were the periods of leases and what happens if the lease expired and that family farm or potentially the next generation of that family said we don't want the wind turbine here anymore how how does that work
2: yeah like the term of the lease so i think it was a decade uh to shoot uh, a couple of five-year extensions in that so 20 years all in was really the commitment and you're what you're trying to do is you're the independent power producer, right? The wind developer, I guess in this case, and often called IPPs, right? They, they need to backstop you know, their investment cash, right? With, these, with a power purchase agreement with a, a utility or an eventual buyer, you know, take into account wheeling costs, like getting energy from this electrical node over to this one. So yeah, they're very long-term. So what would happen, I think what it was seen as is it lent comfort once they made the decision on those three issues you bring up and the noise one, One's a good one too. That came up sometimes too, but I think you got the order right with respect to concern. But once they kind of drove through that, I think what they they liked about it was, hey, this is like a long term thing, and my kids can enjoy this income as well. So it wasn't like it, it was like seen as a benefit that they were long term, you know, versus a detriment. Yeah, and I guess
0: I was just hinting at to finish that thought, the potential for the next generation, either a change in heart of that particular generation that made that decision to bring that wind farm on, or the next generation to say, well got it. But I, now I don't want it here and how that would work out. But that's, uh, that's just an interesting thought line um, when I think about private property and leases and so forth.
1: Yeah. So that was some of the stuff early in your career. I know as far as wind farms, you also later in your career got involved in actually constructing the, the wind farms and construction management aspects of it. Yeah. And in, in, in Vermont and, and elsewhere, maybe could you talk about some of the issues that come up once you move to, to actual construction?
2: Sure. Yeah, so I started out as a developer. I was just I did that for a couple of years. I moved out to Colorado and tried to develop there too. But I I ran into a fellow named John Malone. I don't know if you, he's a billionaire.
1: I know him, Cable Cowboy. It's an excellent book. I love it.
2: So I ran to that guy because I was trying to build a wind farm on his property, right? <laughs> and and I finally got a meeting with John Malone. Seriously, at the end of like a a you know a hundred foot like oak table, you know, and I got through his admin was not messing around right this gal was like I was on call like number 27 with this gal you know and I finally got to sit with John Malone I brought my Boston and John Malone's like we're like we want to lease your property and he's like I want to buy your company I'm like oh <laughs> so it was just a, a funny deal I'm like I keep running this John Malone but anyway you know it was I didn't do a darn thing I worked in Colorado out of Fort you know Fort Collins my my soon to be spouses going to school at CSU there in Fort Collins. And I just like kept on as a contractor to this independent power producer out of Minneapolis. And they're like, "Oh, do what you did in, North, in Northwest Illinois. Yeah, no problem. I'm like, well, it was a problem. I couldn't land anything. So very different ranch land owned by John Malone versus, you know, 80 acre, were barely surviving properties. Right. Anyway, but to ask get to your question, uh Scott, I got out of that, went to MA what was then called M.A. Mortenson Company, they're called Mortenson Construction now. And they had about, at the time, just an incredible grab on the market of building wind projects. So probably it was them and another company in Minnesota out of St. Cloud, Blattner, right? That probably had about maybe 50, 50, 60% of the North American market on building wind projects. And really that comes down to, and I'll get your question, Jason, it's like, what are the challenges on building a wind project, right? Well, Getting widgets there, you know, getting these parts there is a real deal. Uh, we I got some experience, uh, even my next step when I, I moved to Vermont. So I'm at Morton's insofar as I worked as an estimator there, really just building up what wind farms cost and the big to do there regarding your ability to control that market is having control of the supply of the kind of the nation's like main erection cranes. If you got the big cranes, and, and lease them on long-term, like what Mortensen did, you actually could suck up a lot of the availability. And then as a consequence, you just have this cyclical, like we have this control. So a lot of the effort done at Mortensen strategically was, A, they were kind of in early, but they also made a lot of effort to, to secure a lot of drainage, And they did a really good job at that. And it kept some other players out. Now, there's a lot of money to be made in that. So I think what had happened was, it was glory days. They call us the Propeller Heads there, you know. So you're at, you're at a, a place that builds like massive sports stadiums, like US Bank right stadium that Mortensen built that right. The Vikings, Minnesota Vikings play there, and all these other places. And these were like kind of nuanced, you know, like oh we're building we're building wind turbines now. It's just not in our core, but it was so profitable that they just ran with it. So anyhow, I peeled out of uh, Mortensen and worked for one of Mortensen's clients called First Wind. They, I think at the time were called UPC Wind, but they built, for some reason, they, they were GE Capital-backed. They, they built projects in really tough areas, like in the, in the mountains of Vermont, which, you know, there's some issues there. And the big ones on infrastructure side are getting your turbine equipment there. I mean, we had to get a, I think we had the first exit off of a, an interstate in like the history, you know, of, of like the wind farm business, like I negotiated with, it was a, a major interstate that we pulled all this wind turbine gear off of that was close to where this project was. Not even that, but economically getting all this equipment to Vermont, for instance, that, that was problematic. Like these blades that came from like Washington, I think there's another blade place somewhere else on stateside. I got the opportunity to, you know, to read into our turbine supply agreement and was able to, kind of see like, well, why don't we get all these blades directly from, you know, an overseas place. So just trying to get those blades into the U S you know, most economical sense to get them to site. So, you know, use a port that's close to, you know, where the project is. So that was the port of, well, I think it's Portland, Portland, Maine. Yeah. Where, where, where that, where that gear came in for those projects. But I think the big challenge is, uh, there's getting the stuff to site on a hill. Oh my gosh. So if you're building right you know on a hill, I need a flat spot. So they would, basically blast off a big hunk of this mountain and then use a fill, you know, on the downhill side. Pretty destructive, you know, in, in a thinking of, you know, some vectoring and chopping up where wildlife goes and things like that. The real maybe tragic part is, you know, in getting permits, right? So you need to get a wetland permit. You have to impact no greater than like two acres on this huge site. The sites where we built these, at least this particular project, the Sheffield Wind Project was crisscrossed with gobs and gobs of timber harvesting roads that already existed and had existed there for decades. We couldn't use those. We could not use those roads because they had wetlands developed in them. And we, so we had to build, it was just really tragic, parallel roads to the existing roads that had a great base and all that stuff just to get a permit. So that stuff to me was a little kind of tragic to think I got to build a whole new road through this basically virgin like hillside treed mountain, because of some like kind of interpretations of rules that you can't use the existing logging roads. We would have preferred just upgrade these logging roads. Like it's a twofer, right? You know, we're building our stuff. Your logging roads are better now. You know, we'll give you some gravel curb cuts to get your trees out. But no, we built like parallel ones. (laughs) So I was like, that was challenging. Just in a, in like an ethical sense almost to be like, we're really putting new roads on this beautiful mountain here in Vermont and we're blowing out the side of this. So we did do stuff on the infrastructure side on, uh, when I was at Mortenson working for first wind to say, how do you really do a cut fill balance? Well, so we got into some 3d CAD. I was using micro station at the time to really lay out the bits and pieces and put the main erection crane in there and it's swing radii and all that stuff to really try and disturb as little earth as we needed. So that was kind of a fun issue, but otherwise you're just getting electricity out. So I got to, I got to just get an interconnect there. Right.
0: What you highlight there, Jim, it's really, I mean, it's interesting when you think about these massive towers and, and associated blades and the engineering challenge of creating a foundation that'll hold that up uh, to that lateral load of the wind and so forth and the mechanical vibration and so forth. But that construction engineering challenge that you highlight in some of these sites where the wind is the best, maybe even greater. And that you have these so army engineer background, In the end, everything in an operation comes down to logistics. And so getting the materials and like you highlight, I think some of these components, especially the blades, which aren't really something that you can break apart are close to 200 feet long, trying to get this huge component to the site and having it set up so that the crane can actually lift to. Um, I thought you highlighted a pretty interesting equipment resource, a valuable specialized equipment resource that tended to dominate that construction aspect. So as we progress to some of the other challenges associated, and I think you were starting to get to it is the transmission, because right, that the fundamentals of, of sustainable energy come down to the big two challenges of transmission and storage so that we can match supply to demand, right? Because renewables have the intermittent supply cycle that's part of it. So we you're up on this mountain, how do you
2: get the power from where it's generated at its urban down to the grid? Yeah, it's almost like when you think about the siting of a project, right? And I also did some work in um, the Southern tier, you know, in, in New York, these two little communities called Cohocton and Prattsburg, their lead, if you will, from like, here's this wind project. And then I got to get to the T line. I think it was, it was a few miles and that's pretty expensive build, you know, to get all that juice out, right. And building basically a little T line to get to the existing T line. So when you're citing these projects, you know, having a, a T line that's right there is important. So for the case of the Sheffield project, it had a transmission line like right there, right? And you'd cite these on purpose. Great wind resource, you know, transmission line, like number one and two, right? That was really the, really short up a lot of the economics. You can burn a million bucks a mile, oh, easy, you know, on getting that power out. So, you know, and geez, I could, it's almost like I go into this, but we, we had some issues on, you know, when you put in these foundations, they're like 300, 300 cubic yards at minimum. We starting to get up some big suckers, like 450 cubic yards per foundation times hundred. So think about infrastructure. Oh, I go to, in, in Illinois, right? It'd be, hey, we're gonna build this wind project. And the, the, the county road commissioner dude's like, well, what are you bringing in here? I'm like, well, a lot of this and a lot of, and, uh, just gobs of really heavy crap, right? That would ruin their roads in effect so they we'd started doing stuff like seriously like lidar scanning their road like a before and after and putting in a, a bond to to accommodate how we would wreck their road it was interesting some of the places so early back in 03 you know they wouldn't even have an ordinance for a wind project so it's really my job to go into the community and get a zoning ordinance approved for this thing so some of the stuff is just straight up planning but that logistics size we ran into you have to get ungodly amounts of gravel and concrete there so the We didn't have a really great spot to get aggregate for a road. So it actually caused for a a local kind of business guy to open up a pit and he blasted off like this whole stuff, you know, just to build that wind project. Cause the, the demand for cubic yardage of gravel was insane, you know, as it couldn't be met locally that well. So it it caused for this economic development to happen where there was a pit active for a couple of years while they built it kind of neat. Yeah. There's probably some other war story type stuff, even the turbine, the turbine supply. It was a time when, I think we're going to get into this maybe later, but where the production tax credit, you know, the federal incentive to build these wind projects was active. And so it was a really hot market, right? Get your 30% off, right? And they even front loaded that to make it a, it's called a little different delivery vehicle, but it's, you know, production tax credit. You get credits based on production, or they just push that all up front and give you a 30% off right up front. Investment tax credit, they call that. So it's like 30% off, big subsidy from the feds. And so there's a run on these wind turbines, right? Everybody needs wind turbines. They were not available, you know, to buy like 22 of them. You had to buy like 200 of them. So it was, it was us first and I think British Petroleum at the time, BP supported a company in Cedar Rapids, Iowa called Clipper, Clipper wind turbines or something like that. And they had kind of this new widget, you know, a new wind turbine that had four generators on instead of just one thinking in the modular sense, like if that gen set generator fails, we can pull another one up. And that didn't work out that well. That place had some real challenges. They went... They went on under and didn't succeed. And it caused for a lot of sort of assets to be a little more distressed than as originally advertised, right? When you got a basically we got a piece of technology that's up in the air that costs a lot of money to maintain and operate, and the place is out of business. It's like so a little bit of a you kind of had to do it, you know, if you want to build and go big. And some of these these leaders uh at first win, like this startup, were pretty aggressive just a fun group that moved fast as they started up.
1: <laughs> you kind of already started getting into what I wanted to ask about next which is the the tax credits. There there was a boom boom and a bust I think for wind. I don't know when you'd pin which years were the boom years and which years were the bust years and uh, where we're at now and how, how much of that boom and bust do you think was driven by the by the tax credits? And do you know when those expired and what's the state of uh, tax credits now I'm, I'm under the impression they're mostly n-
2: not really there like they used to be. yeah probably should have done a little homework before this one but I, I know the the rubber yeah the rubber hit the road when it was like it would expire right so just think about your whole pro forma right here's 30 percent off <laughs> you know when that's not available it just it's over so what would happen is total boom and bust and it, the you'd almost rather have it bust for a long time versus the cyclical thing. You know, it's pretty painful to recover from that. So it would be in place and then it would stop. I think my run at first wind, it was a uh, 07 to 09. It was in place that whole time, I believe. So everything was kind of fine. You know, you get your power purchase agreements. There's all these rules on. It's coming up at the end of the year. You have to evidence this much completion of the project to qualify for it. But I think it's just maybe sort of garage logic on, if someone's going to give you a 30% coupon, you're going to build, right? And if you think it's going to come back, like in a in eight months, you're going to wait, right? So that's just what happened. Just total like, go, oh crap, it's not here. And it was really herky-jerky on getting it retroactively reinlit, reinstated. And now we've got some fun stuff coming up on repowering sites, which is kind of a, a new big boom. Like all these sites are building early knots, right? They've got turbines that are early 2000s technology well frankly just because of advancements that the blades are better you can take some of the infrastructure like the tower for instance that's a metal cone right you know or a metal tube that's done being designed right although there are some concrete ones that i think are sort of relevant but usually it's just big steel ones so you could take take the blade set down get rid of it repick longer blades that are more efficient and start using this is really a, awesome technological advance was basically shooting lidar ahead of the turbine or having lidar stations set up ahead of the turbine shooting straight up really predict when you're going to get a massive gust of wind right so you're thinking about this stuff it's really expensive gear that's up in the air right and you want to babysit it and make sure it's not getting overstressed and over so you know these turbines they can pitch they can yaw do all this stuff they have brakes in them and if you can a huge technological thing happen when People thought about, well, I got all these turbines and then you got to keep them active because if that thing's not spinning, I mean, every hour that thing's spinning under high load, like some of these turbines are two and a half megawatts, five megawatts, you get five megawatt hours in an hour. It's just like ungodly amounts of juice. Right. But Jason, you touched on this intermittency issue. I, I think the big to do was like, there's so much worry, you know, about like, oh, I got this wind coming in and maybe more purist type thinking folks saying, ah intermittent resource. But as it were, I think the, the smart money ended up being on the grid can actually take a lot more wind than they had originally been concerned about. You know, I have an analogy about EV charging that maybe we could get into it in a bit. That's because that's what I do now. But it, it just seemed like any wind you could push on the grid, it seemed to take it pretty well. And I wish I knew a little more of the math behind that. But I think there's a really big concern on it's an intermittent wind resource. Well, if you think about a causal path of like decommissioning coal, it is clearly, you know, causation is it's a bunch of renewables on the grid. We can decommission some coal plants. That's a a big driver for that. Also, we're even seeing in a peaker sense, if you need a a resource to accommodate a, a peak, a really good way to do that now is with a big solar farm, solar and battery storage, right? Versus doing gas, you know, natural gas peakers. So we're seeing this. It's like a subsidy comes in. Here comes the players. They build stuff out. they learn a bunch of stuff. The technology gets better, gets more economical. And I don't think anyone would have really predicted how economical wind ended up being as far as how it interfaces with the grid. It was kind of a nice surprise. I think that it, it worked out so well.
0: So it, that, that's a really interesting point. And this sort of progresses our conversation a little bit more on the, the uh, renewables in general and how they compose as part of the overall investment portfolio for, for electrical energy. Yeah, I think that the intermittency really comes into play when you're looking to transition. Well, one That's it, it, interesting to hear that the grid can accept it and, and, and really process it and match it to where the demand is with some of the help of the other uh, electrical energy producing components in the portfolio. But I think it gets even more more poignant as more and more renewables are put on the grid and focused. I think I, I read recently that in the last year or so, for example, 72% of the new electrical en- energy generation that's gone on the grid was renewable. So that's a large majority of what's going on in the grid is, as far as new production is renewable. As it transitions more and more to renewables, that's where the intermittency and the ability to have those peak peak generation aspects becomes more and more important And trying to marry the diversity of those energy-producing assets to do so. But it's interesting where we're at right now that wind is just just adding to, and it's not, intermittency is less of an issue. I, I did think it was interesting, as you were talking, I, those that might be familiar with the concept of a uh, the learning curve, Jim, you're familiar with the learning curve, the technology learning curve associated, especially with renewable energy. It's, it's a function of Moore's law, which is born out of uh, microchips and processors. But uh, the, the general concept behind it is that the learning curve is that for every doubling of capacity, there's an associated price decline and whatever that percentage is. And as Scott and I have talked previously up in other episodes about the steep price decline of the generation of renewable solar uh, we, the episode that we did you know, titled Solar Was King was all about that concept. And wind is similarly experiencing this learning curve, especially over the last decade. I read an article recently that price for wind has over a, a period of a decade has dropped by 23% of that, that learning curve is trying to capture that learning curve. We'll, we'll post up sort of a little visual that shows that learning curve a little better on the blog, but, and it's, it's, it's spurred on by some of the government incentives, but then it also is just spurred on as the more and more production that happens you get that that scalability and the efficiencies that are associated with that, and it seems like you were starting to see that when you were um, in there. And I don't know if, if your current position and where you are in the energy in energy industry, if you've seen uh, that learning
2: curve in other areas. Absolutely, yeah. If we want to go there, like I, I'm just really into electric vehicles right now. The electric yeah. vehicle charging station infrastructure, which. I think your point on that, I'm definitely seeing that these deployments are getting huge. The price, you know, there's a lot of pressure, you know, on the the OEMs that sell, let's say fast chargers, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to keep pricing down. There's also the benefit of scale, you know, as people buy more and more EVs, it's a, it's a funky, it's a funky thing because the load growth as brought by electric vehicles, it will be... uh, I'll just give you an example. Like my house, if I turn everything on in my house, like my oven, my microwave, like every single switch, you know, let's say my breaker doesn't flop, you know, my main breaker, but I may be pulling like maybe eight or nine kilowatts max. Well, you could, you could buy a, a electric vehicle that will accept 19.2 kilowatts. And so it's like, Whoa, wait a second. Here's a whole household that runs on nine kilowatts peak. And here's a car that's becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Well, hell, I'll just go with the cheap ones right now. A Tesla model three. That's a good deal. That's a good deal car there. It was over 300 miles, you know, and it charged at 11.5 kilowatts. So I got this whole household. I got one damn car that has the same peaking. It's so we're seeing a whole bunch of fun stuff that's happening on trying to accommodate this load from utilities in an infrastructure sense on when we have these, like, for instance, a fast charger out, how often is it being used when there's a coincident peak involved you know, uh, with the grid, right? So the grid's like peaked out. It's trying to deliver all this juice. And then all of a sudden this fast charger jumps on. There's another 50 kilowatts asking, how often does that happen? It never happens. It's, it's really a funny, funny deal. It's, it's called the Barry curve. I think that's B-A-R-Y. Basically how many hours, what percentage of the hours on the year is this thing being used? That would be like a load factor, right? So they're really low right now because adoption's really low right? Not a lot of people own EVs. You know, you think a lot do, but they don't compared to like gasoline vehicles, right? You hear about them a lot. It's a hot topic. The thing that the utilities need really to stay relevant is making sure that they can get people on uh, programs where they have a residential charger and they can control their load, right? So you come in and plug in and you just, you can't give them all they wanted instantly or at scale, all those transformers, like in those cul-de-sacs, you know, a corner transform, they'll all pop, you know, they can't it's not impossible to even think about accommodating its entire load if all of them are using it at once. So you put people on a time of use, or off peak, have them charge overnight, you know, and everything's fine and dandy, but getting people on that program, that's a thing you don't like to tell Americans don't like to get told what to do, you know, right. So you are getting to the core of, (laughs) of electrical power,
0: right? I mean, from, you know, you know, everybody that's living right now, for sure, maybe if not in the early days, but right now, if you turn your light switch on, you expect it to light your light bulb and you, you have the power when you need it. So, it is an instantaneous supply to your demand. And so to move off of that concept yeah. in, in America based on rugged individualism, that's particularly difficult. Uh, but I, I think it's really interesting what you're talking about. Back uh, almost a decade, actually was a decade ago, I was in California and I was uh, having dinner with an early, uh, I, I, an engineer for Tesla, and this was very early on. He had been part of the company from the get-go. And I asked the question very similar to this. I said, what are I, I have concerns, at least in my research and reading that the grid is going to have a hard time accepting uh, all this load when we start to see scaling up of electric vehicles and back then now this is 2009 he disagreed he's like no it, it won't be that big of an issue he said maybe once it reaches a tipping point of a very high percentage of the population but because he was speaking to the ability to to, to work that charging and that most people are going to be charging overnight which is your off-peak time and so it, that peak power was less of an issue um, i'm interested to see and there's a lot of talk about this. And I don't know if there's talk in Congress right now about the American Energy Innovation Act, which is trying to get after some of the aspects of, of the infrastructure, specifically the electrical infrastructure. I, I didn't see anything on it with this. It has lots of more to do with resiliency um, and, and some storage in there. But what where where this is all going to come together and coalesce so that we have a plan as electric vehicles ramp up. I know, um, is it GM that just announced that they're going to have 100% electrical
2: vehicle fleet by i think it's either 2025 or 2030 or something like that yeah i saw, I saw that big announcement you, you'd think you really another gm example they released this this hummer this ev truck and i was thinking god that's expensive people aren't going to buy that they're sold out they say they announced a the day every single one even though they cost 120 grand right every single one so, loud. so it's kind of the, it's really like a Tesla model too. You sell an expensive car. It helps to fund, you know, these, these less expensive ones, but I think we're, what's so nice about that. So, you know, the, there's a little difference, right? Like, so I flip that light switch, right? And boom, the power gets delivered and it's in that light and it's, it's working right now. It's kind of crazy, but the average American at this average, the average American drives 37 miles a day, right? So that, it's, it's not a lot. The average American does 2000 miles of long distance travel a year, you know, so you're like, well, I'm trying to meet that use case, right? And that's actually not that hard to do. I, I When I talk to people about, you know, how fast they want their chargers, especially in a residential sense, I, I call it like the Honda Ridgeline argument. I don't know, it's a car, so I hope it's not confusing, but Honda, in my opinion, they made the truck that people need. They, don't, they didn't make the truck that people want, right? So when people are thinking about charging, they too want like all of it and now, but if you can get them on programming, you know, and just, kind of calm that down a bit every single morning a residential user uh, owner of an ev wakes up with a fully charged car ding 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 ding. every single morning so it's just not a huge it's not a huge deal and that utility can say that guy's full stop sending power to him or you know we're starting to get into state of charge things like what is the actual it's a little bit be a little careful about the little socialist sounding but if you made decisions on how fast people are going to get charged based upon their current state of charge of that battery, we're going to start seeing that too. So it's kind of an approach on if you sign up this programming, your price to per kilowatt hours way down here, but here's all the stuff you agreed to. If you pull up, you got an 80% charge and the last 20 trips you took only discharged you 20%, forget about it. We're not going to charge you. We're going to charge your neighbor who's down at 5%. And then at least what we do at Zeph, the place I work right now at Zeph Energy, we allow uh, our utilities to let <laughs> to let the homeowner interrupt a load control instance with a smartphone app right and it's kind of a trick is you psychologically have to give people comfort that everything's fine they can get their power when they want everything's cool so then you give them you give them an app that says ah i don't want to get load controlled right now i want all my juice now and all i got to do is hit this button well they never hit the button they never hit it cuz every single morning they're <laughs> fully charged so it's a it's a whole I mean, the utilities became gas stations. That's kind of what happened. Every outlet's a freaking gas station now. So it, it's it's a it's a fun industry to be in. Like certainly EVs are hot. Biden said it a whole bunch during his his debates. You know,
1: that's really interesting. I had no idea these sort of the nuances of how much power the the cars drove and that it, it needed to be metered out so closely. As you know, more and more people in a one neighborhood get EVs, that that would. I overload the local local grid. I had, I had no idea about that. That's that's really interesting stuff. Before we wind this up, I also wanted to ask you about I know you're you have an MBA from the University of Minnesota and you're you're an adjunct professor at uh, UMD teaching uh, strategic management. I, I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about that or how how you might apply the concepts from strategic management the renewable industry.
2: All right. I wouldn't say I'm the best prop in the world, honestly. What I, what I am good at, though, is bringing in real world experience. And I almost, I joke sometimes like I'm a professional quitter. You know, I've had so many jobs. I'm just trying to kind of stay entertained, you know, in a way. And, but to get to your point, we'll have some, I just kind of use what I got right now. So it'd be all right, I'm making an electric vehicle charging station and do I go with a cost leadership approach or do I go with a differentiator approach, right? Do we, is our widget that much better than everybody else? Or, you know, is it that much cheaper than everybody else? Or is there, is there a, can we marry those? It's actually hard to do, you know, kind of marry those things. So we, we are like in real time, have struggles with that at my current work. So it's really nice to just tell these kids I call them kids. Which approach is, is your company taking? Are you guys differentiated or low cost? Differentiated. It just so happens that our five-year cost is 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 very uh, attractive. So we really push our clients saying, you're going to own this more than a hot minute, right? You'll probably own it for five years, which is, or 10, their design life on every charger, whether it's a level two charger, like a 240 volt or 208 volt charger or a fast charger. It's a, got a 10-year life on it. It's just inverters and plugs, you know, how long they you could cycle them or how many cycles. But we, so... <laughs> Dang it, you got me on the spot. Now we, we kind of do, we have these little nuance differentiators and really that's all you can get. Like, uh, I don't know the, between any one product and next, you just get this little nuance and it's sort of this commoditization, you know, of, of people's purchasing decisions. Like I can go on Amazon and be like, oh, that one's another $2 cheaper and it's prime capable. We're going to get that. So we, we got out of, we're, we're definitely not a B2C company. We're a B2B. So we do, that's a big choice we made. We just sell into utilities generally or large commercial spaces. So a lot of these examples I talked about, I think earlier on a residential, it's sort of an early adopters thing. Like if you can buy an EV, you also own a house and a garage. Well, that's just not the case for at least 40% of people in Minnesota, at least, you know, they live in multi-unit housing. We think that there's going to be a lot of growth there. I have these students do kind of a term project and it gets into What I think is like a necessity now, like a triple bottom line kind of view on business. And I think a lot of consumers, we used to be called citizens, by the way, you know, like we're now called consumers because we buy stuff, (laughs) which I always think is sort of tragic, you know, like, but I I would roll in just stuff that I do professionally into my work. I almost say, will I do this class again? Gosh, it's such a, to really teach people stuff very well. It's a God awful amount of effort and it takes a lot of time. I think my days as an adjunct professional, I probably are gonna gonna pause them insofar as I'm so in, incredibly busy trying to, you know, help launch at bigger scale this electric vehicle charging station company.
1: You need to get John Malone into your class. That'd be
2: a, be the, be <laughs> that'd the same be a thing. Hey John, you wanna um, buy something? He's like, how about I buy you? How about I buy you, buddy? You know? Oh my gosh.
1: Great. Well, thanks for thanks for coming out, Jim. And uh, that's that's all I got.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Yeah, that was that was fun.
0: Thank you for joining us for the build big ideas podcast for show notes. Please see www.buildbigideas.com to ask us a question or suggest a podcast guest or topic. You can contact us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or by email contact info on the website. Please consider signing up for our mailing list to receive a short monthly email with links to the best of what we are reading and writing. Please rate the build big ideas podcast on Apple iTunes, to help us find interested listeners. If you enjoy Build Big Ideas, please tell a friend or two. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Do not consider anything to be discussed professional engineering or investment advice. Views discussed here are personal and not representative of employers or any other organization that the hosts or guests are associated with.